All right, all right. Nehemiah chapter eight. You know, in our uh, in our the world we live in today, this modern era, and we live in such a modern era now, and. There are all types of uh, churches out there, and 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 there's a lot of these. Uh, I guess you could call them catchphrases, or or maybe um, uh, ways to title these different types of churches that are out there, or different type of church services that people are are hoping to find. And uh, let me give you a couple of them, or a few of them. Uh, maybe okay, maybe four of them. A little, twice as many as a couple. Uh, but here, here's a word you might hear uh, just bantered about out there in, in, in regards to churches. And the type of church and the type of, say, service somebody wants to go to. They might say, I'm looking for something relevant. You ever heard that? You ever heard that word relevant? This is, and this is, I think, what they mean by it many times, is, is that uh, when somebody says, our church is relevant... It means that they have truth that applies where you're living today. But the implication of that also is that there is some truth that doesn't apply today. Yeah. Now, now, now ponder that a little bit. All truth is God's truth. And is there any truth that is not relevant to today? Well, absolutely not. It's truth. It's all true. So, so, and I know why they do these things. I know why they get these catchphrases because they, they, they are trying to set themselves apart from a church what they say is not relevant, which means it's not meeting the needs of the modern society. And I'm sorry, but the Word of God meets the needs of every society there is in every time period. From the time it, it, that God gave it to today, it meets us all because we're the all, we are all cut out of the same cloth we all have the same problem. So that's one of them, relevant. Here's another one, modern. They have so much wisdom and understanding, they can reach the current culture with something new and fresh. And th- th- This modern church, it's not stuck in yesterday. It's not stuck in hymns. <laughs> it's not stuck in preaching. It's modern. And, 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 it, and it appeals to the modern crowd, the millennial crowd, the the up the 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 up and coming crowd that is just in tune with everything today. What about this one? Contemporary. We're contemporary. Well, I'm living pretty contemporary right now. I'm, I'm here right now. You know, it's contemporary. <laughs> but what they mean by that is no suits or ties. What they mean by that is not even just a casual appearance. It, it, what it comes from casual from a casual outward many times can lead to a casual inward or be a re- revelation of a casual inward but the contemporary man is a contemporary woman is a, is a casual individual we're all casual everything's casual no songbooks we have video screens we have rock and roll music we have 40 minutes of praise and worship and about 15 or 20 minutes of devotionalizing and probably no altar call. Probably not. That's contemporary. They're up and coming. Here's another one. We get accused of this. Old-fashioned. Oh, you're so old-fashioned. I had, I had a guy, I think I told you about this guy. I, I, he said, oh, oh, you're, you're old-fashioned. I said, no. I think we're a good term is biblical and timeless and things like that. Just 
Because something is old doesn't mean it's irrelevant or out of date. Do you realize we've been breathing air for a really long time? We've been breathing... (laughs) Humans have been breathing air since we came on the planet, and and nobody goes, oh, that's so old-fashioned. I can't believe you still breathe. Come on. Now, that sounds silly, but it's just as applicable to the concept of, well, your church is just old-fashioned. Well, if it's true... And we are, and we have attempted to create the, to to uh, build this church the way God intends it to be built on truth. It's not old fashioned; it's timeless. It's timeless. But regardless of the labels, there there is one church type that's missing from the list, and that is what we would hope to be. Though we might be called other things, our desire is to be a church that is biblical. That's what we want to be. We want to be a biblical church. 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 33, the Bible says, For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all churches of the saints. So God has an order for His church. It's not one of confusion, because God is not the author of confusion, but it is an order in the church which is understandable and is visible and knowable. God is a God of order, And he has requirements. God has requirements for worship. Can you imagine that? God God says you've got to worship me this way? Well, sure he does. We We know that verse in John 4. God is a spirit. And those that worship him must worship him what? In spirit and in truth. Wow, that's a that's an order of worship. That 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 is a requirement for worship. God says, if your worship of me is in the flesh. I don't accept it. It's not. No, not even that he doesn't accept it. It's just not worship. (laughs) It's not the worship of God. And so worship that is not in the spirit is, you can call it whatever it is. You can call it whatever you wanted to call it. You can call your music worship music. You can call your praise and worship time this or whatever it is. But if it's if it's rooted in the flesh and if it's rooted in carnality, if it's rooted in worldliness, it's not worship. It just isn't. And within the Word of God, God has inserted within our chapter 8 here of Nehemiah the events of a great service that was held when the walls of Jerusalem were completed. And, and it, is, it is in this chapter that many other, in this chapter here, I'm trying to think how, how I want to say this. It's in this, this chapter and in other chapters of the Bible, there we go. That was tough. And in other chapters of the of the Bible, that that we see the mind of God regarding the look of a church service. No, in chapter eight, we think about this. Of all that God could have recorded, of all that God could have left for us to read, the Bible even says that all of just what Jesus said, if it were recorded, the books of all of the world could not contain everything that He said. So we conclude from that, we deduce from that, that what we have today within the Word of God is exactly what God wanted us to have. And here in chapter 8, we have an illustration of what it looked like when God's people got together as an assembly and came before God in a time of worship and what that looks like. So in this chapter that we're going to see what it looks like and we're going to see what the results are of that service. 
So here, here, here we're, we're going to see it, the assembly. We're going to see what it looks like. We're going to see what they do. And we're going to see what the results are of what they do. So look at chapter 8 and verse 1. And all the people gathered themselves together as one man under the street that was before the water gate. Now, if you'd back up to chapter 6 and verse 15, you don't really need to go there. You may if you, you could if you want to. But in chapter 6 and verse 15, we see that the wall was finished. And, and then in chapter 7, they had finished a census after that. And this census wasn't necessarily just to count people, and it, although there was an aspect of determining how many people were there, how many people were there at Jerusalem at this time after the finishing of the wall. But it was also there to determine who was supposed to be there. How many Israelites were present? They didn't count the non-Israelites, they only counted the Israelites. And I believe inadvertently, whether they understood it or not, that God allowed them to count the people. He, he moved Nehemiah to count the people to preserve a record of the lineage to verify when the Messiah came. We have, we have, think about that. They, they, they have just been in Babylon for, they spent 70 years in Babylon. At the time that Nehemiah came into this place, we're looking at about 170 years since Israel was scattered and the Babylonians removed them from the land. So, so history, no doubt, some history is lost. There's some history that could be buried. And God needed, God, He didn't need it, but because He knows how we are and humans are, God allowed and wanted and desired the preservation of lineages of, of lineages to show the connection of Jesus Christ all the way back to, to the seed, to, uh, to, to Seth, all the way back to Adam and Eve. That's what God, that was what God wanted. And I think this was inadvertent on Nehemiah's part. I don't know if he really understood this. But chapter 6 and verse 5 even says this so much. And that it says this, Look at the, listen to this. Then, uh, oh, wrong one, wrong one. I'm in the wrong one. Chapter 7 of verse 5, And my God put into mine heart to gather together the nobles and the rulers and the people that they might be reckoned by genealogy. So Nehemiah says, God put this in my heart. God, God told me to do this. I'm sure he had it in his mind. Wait a minute, God didn't want David to number the people. Wait a minute, they, you know, God wasn't real big on numbers. Not by power, nor by, nor by might, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. It's not by your numbers, it's not by your side. God saying, I will take care of you. But, you know, here he wants them numbered. I think it was just preservation of a genealogy. It's simply what it was. So the census is finished. An offering was taken. And everyone, at the end of chapter 7, the Bible says everyone is settled in their homes and in their cities where they are. Now, in verse 1, I just read in chapter 8, it's the first day of the seventh month. And the people of Israel gathered themselves together in front of the water gate, and they asked Ezra to bring the word of God to read it. Now, I want to remind you, remember the gates when we went over the gates a month or so ago? Now, remember this here. Now they are in front of the water gate. It's completed. The gates are up. It's all intact. And here they are in front of this water gate. The uh, history says there's a, a very wide road, a very uh, large area, of, of course, to accommodate all, all of these people. And the census that Nehemiah takes up, he had counted 40, 42,360 people in this genealogy, not including over 7,000 that were servants and over 245 of them that were the men and women of the singing and the musicians that had come up. So we had quite a few people here standing in front of this water gate. 
And if you remember, this water gate led down to the Guyon Springs, which was located just adjacent to the Kidron Valley. And it was this Kidron Valley that uh, separated. You'd come down out of Jerusalem. If I'm not believe, if I'm not mistaken, you'd got on over the, the the River Kidron and you'd gone up into the Mount of Olives. And this is what Jesus did when he went into the Mount of Olives to pray that night. And I don't know if you realize this, but is that Kidron River, that river that that in the Kidron Valley, if I'm not mistaken. I might have to, you may have to correct me on this later. But if I'm not mistaken, this is where the priests, when they would sacrifice the sheep, and they would, the, the blood of those animals would run down into that valley and down into that Kidron River. And at the time of Passover, that river would run red with the blood uh, of the sacrifices that were going on just before the Passover. Now think about this. When Jesus went and left Jerusalem to go into the Garden of Gethsemane to pray up into the, uh, up into the garden, he would have come down down out of Jerusalem he would have gone over the Kidron and up up into the up into the uh, up into the, uh, the the garden up into the Mount of Olives in the garden up to pray there's a wonderful little symbolism there when he came down and went over the blood and went up neat neat picture there that's drawn but this is that same Kidron valley that would have flowed with blood during the time of the Passover and this is where they're standing at the water gate now, if you remember the spiritual significance of the water, is that the water gate is a picture of the Word of God and its effect upon our life. In Ephesians chapter 5 and verse uh, 26, speaking of the church, the Bible says that He might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water, what? By the Word. The Word of God is cleansing, is it not? You know, the, one of the best things you can do when you have just one of those days is just to get in the Word of God and let it wash you. Sometimes you just need to get in and let it wash you because it's not the filth that you maybe have done, but it's just the filth that you're around. And, you, and it's in the mind, and, it's, and it's just, you just feel like, I wish I didn't have to live in the cesspool every day. And what we do is we get into the Word of God, maybe at night or in the morning, let it clean us. It's a cleansing. Psalm 119, we know this. The Bible says, Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed Thereto according to thy word. You want to cleanse your way? You got dirty from the world? Get in the word of God and let it wash you. John 15 and verse 3, the Bible says, Now are you clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. We are Listen, you know we are saved by the Word of God. We are kept by the Word of God. We are cleansed by the Word of God. And if you remember the gate before the water gate, that, way, that gate that came just before the water gate, was the fountain gate. This is, the where, this is where the, the, the wonderful symbolism in that fountain gate of being cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ and out of you now is coming rivers of living water. That's what Jesus said, you know, in John 7 and verse 38. He said, He that believeth on me, as the Scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. This was the, this water gate, you remember, came before, the, I'm sorry, the fountain gate came before the water gate. And in the, in the great picture here is you may be saved and you're born again and out of you are flowing rivers of living water, but you get dirty from the world at times and you get dirty out of your own choices and your own actions. And sometimes you just need to come to the water gate to be cleaned up a little bit. The fountains may be flowing free after you've gone through that fountain gate, but because we live in a sin-cursed earth and because we get dirty and because sin comes into life, fountains get clogged up. Sometimes fountain water gets dirty. 
gets stirred up and gets dirty. And there's listen, there is nothing more miserable in the life of a believer than a, a believer who's, whose plumbing is all backed up and dirty. They're miserable creatures to be around. And they just need to get to the water gate and get clean. So how do we get clean again? How do we get clean? Word of God. Now watch this. Here they are at where? They're standing in front of what? The water gate. <laughs> They're standing in front of the water gate. So then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. The Word of God cleanses us. The Word of God builds us up. So notice in chapter 8 again. Think about this. Watch this, watch this imagery going on here. There is an assembly of God's people. They have already been through the fountain gate. They have been in Babylon because of sin. Their home has been in ruins. They had the opportunity to get back into the will of God and they go ahead and they take it. And they go back into the land. And they're right back where God wanted them to be. And they finish the building and they have assembled. And this group of God's people who have been dirtied by the world are assembling at the water gate. And look, notice what they, what do they ask for? Look at this in verse 1. And all the people gathered themselves together as one man into the street that was before the gate. And they spake unto Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded to Israel. Look what they asked for right in front of the water gate. They say, we want the word of God. <laughs> Why? They needed it. They needed the word of God. And look who they want to read it. They want Ezra. Remember what Ezra was? He was the first of something. They turned out pretty bad in Jesus' day. He was a scribe. He would, he would copy the Word of God. He was a man of God. We remember looking at Ezra's life and, and the brokenness in Ezra's life and, and what a godly man he was and, and, and how he, uh, in his relationship with God and what he was able to accomplish in the building of the temple. And so they asked for the man of God. They asked for, the, they asked for Ezra. Who, who was skillful in the Word of God, but not only was he skillful in the Word of God, he had the, he had the greatest heart for the will of God. He had a great heart for God. And, and you know, hey, be careful. Be careful about getting your knowledge of the Bible from, from a great mind rather than a great heart. You know, there's a lot of people in our society today, a lot of preachers, a lot of teachers, and, 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 I, and I pray that I would never fall into this category. And, uh, of, of, well, the great mind is a problem. I, I don't, I'm not worried about that. But these that have great minds for the Word of God, they have a great mind in the Word of God, but the heart's not there. It's all mechanics. It's all machinery. It's just the, this, it's just this mechanics of religion just chugging along and they have knowledge after knowledge after knowledge after knowledge. But it's like a relationship is missing. Yeah. Head no Listen, head knowledge without heart knowledge produces people puffed up with pride. When Paul said, knowledge puffeth up. Knowledge without use. Knowledge not in action. Knowledge without compassion just brings pride. They know the Bible, but they just don't care about people. This is what we don't want here. So look at this. Verse 8, chapter 8 and verse 1, we have an assembly. 
they have assembled here in front of the water gate and asked for the word of God. But notice number two I want to notice. Beside the assembly, number two, look at the activities that are going on. Verses two through five. We've already noted that they've asked for the word of God. And I've just said, if they're, if, if, listen, if your soul is needing cleansed, there's, there's nothing else to ask for but the Word of God. Hebrews 4.12, we know this, the Word of God is what? Quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and the marrow and is a discerner and, uh, of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. That is what the Word of God is. It's powerful. Can I tell you something? You know, I I, I love music. I love singing. I love it when God's people rejoice, when God's people sing, and when they sing heartily as unto the Lord, and and when they rejoice in God. I enjoy that. I love that. Uh, I think it's a blessing. I think God enjoys that, and God God deserves deserves that that type of a... uh, um, a response, a type of uh, music and, 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 and uh, worship out of our life. But a service centered on music and entertainment is like a life centered on dessert. <laughs> now I'm talking about the activities now that are going to be going on that we're going to look at here. The activities that are going on in the assembly. You know, dessert tastes good. And it's addicting. But when sickness comes, the body has no strength to fight. You're emaciated. You have nothing. You, know, you, know, you, 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 you have to have some meat. You have to have some vegetables. You have to have something of substance in your body or else you'll, just, you'll, you'll die. You'll not be able to fight anything off. You'll be a sickly individual. And dare I say it's ungodly. Your body is, I don't know, it's not my notes. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Hey, the, the, the Bible says that, 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 that if you, you defile the body, the, the Bible says God will destroy it. This is not our body. Think about this. God made this. And sometimes I know it seems spiritual to, to, to kind of talk down the, the relevance of the body, but the point of the, the, the fact of the matter is if God made something, the very fact that he made it proves there's some value to this. No, that it has so that that it has some value. And what is the value? The value is to that that he made it. It's his, and he told us that we are to be careful how we take care of our body. Absolutely. You know, just as it is addicting and 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 bad to have a life addicted to to dessert. Every three, every meal, every every three times a day, pop tart for breakfast. Uh, let me think. Uh, what, what could we do for lunch? Um, uh, Debbie snack cakes for lunch. What do you do for lunch, brother? That's what he does. He just told me Philly cheesecake pizza for lunch, and uh, and uh, Twinkies for supper. You'd be surprised at what gets eaten. <laughs> yeah, this is awful. You ever looked at a shopping cart sometime at a grocery store and go, whoa, <laughs> how are you alive? No, it's awful. I shouldn't say that. No, but spiritually, spiritually, there's no difference. You know, it, 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 if, you, if you live a life 
That is, if you have a spiritual life that is that is based upon upon just uh, singing and praise and worship, and it never gets into the meat of the theology of the Word of God, and your music isn't uh, rooted in the theology of the Word of God, I'm telling you, when Satan comes, you'd better have a little more knowledge of the Word of God than that little small amount that of that that you have in your little worship songs, because he is going to eat you up, and he's going to tear you up. You know, when Satan came to Jesus, you know what Jesus didn't do? Satan came to fight. Jesus didn't, didn't begin singing some song he learned in the temple when he was 12. Yeah, da, 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 da. You know, he didn't start some Hatikva. Anybody? That's the Jewish national anthem, Hatikva. I could sing it for you, but I'm not going to because it's pointless. You know, you know, you know what Jesus did? It is written. He gave him the word of God. He gave, he gave him the Word of God. You know, if our services aren't centered around the Word of God, do you know Christians can't be equipped? And the lost won't be saved? And God won't be pleased? Notice this. The people asked for the Word of God. No, they asked for it. Ezra brought the book out of the Law of Moses. He brought out the Pentateuch to them. And uh, everyone who could hear and had the cognitive ability to understand the Word of God were present. And the Bible says men and women. This just wasn't some convocation for the men. Everybody came out for the Word of God. Listen, ladies, the study of the Word of God isn't just for men. You need to be a student of the Word of God yourself. You absolutely need to be a student of the Word of God. You say, well, I, 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 I can't preach. I'm not supposed to do this. Have we forgotten that the elder ladies are to teach the younger ladies? How can you do that without being equipped with the Word of God? Yeah. So everybody who could hear was there. Everybody who could understand was there. And and, and notice this in verse 1 again. Look at this. They gathered themselves. Do you know we don't have anything recorded here that some edict went out? And some command went out to come into the water gate because Ezra's going to be there and he's going to pull out the Word of God. And you'd better be there because we're going to read the Word of God and if you're not there, we're going to cut you off. Never, nope, didn't go out. <laughs> That's what we do. That's what I have to do at church. But no, Ezra, <laughs> Ezra didn't do this. <laughs> uh, there's no special Sabbath going on. Ezra didn't command him to come out. Nehemiah didn't say anything about this. The people did it all on their own. Why? Because they wanted to. Mm. They wanted to. Now look at verse 3. Verse 3, they, they read the law of Moses from morning until midday. Look at it. And he read therein before the street that was before the water gate from the morning until min- midday before the men and the women and those that could understand and the ears of all the people were attentive unto the book of the law. So the Word of God was read for about five hours. What do you think about them apples? <laughs> five, five hours? You know, they stood there and listened for five hours. Yeah. The Bible says they were attentive to, under the book of the law. And it showed how important they considered the Word of God. Now notice verse 4. We're talking about the activities that go on in the assembly. You see what's happening here? See this order of service? You see what's going on? Look at, look at verse 4. 
And Ezra the scribe stood upon a pulpit of wood, which they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah and Shema and Amiah and Uriah and Hilkiah, uh, Messiah on his right hand and on his left hand, Pediah and Mishael and Malchiah and Ahashim and Hashpadana, Zechariah and Meshulam. He was standing on a pulpit of wood. Do you know that this is why pulpits used to always be made out of wood? You know, there are reasons for these things. <laughs> they just somebody just didn't come, somebody in the Word of God said, "Well, hey, uh, when when Ezra read the Word of God, the front of the assembly, he had a pulpit of wood, and of course, they probably weren't going to make a pulpit of uh, uh, Lexan. I mean, they didn't really have that yet. You know, and these clear pulpits they have out there. And I know he made a pulpit of wood. It was something man made." It was something of, of materials that they found. And he made it for the purpose of what was going on. No, we could say this. It was sanctified. What does sanctified mean? It's set apart. Do you know you and I are sanctified? God has sanctified us. He has set us apart for His purpose. And nothing should go on in our life, but that is, that is to the use and the glory of God. Why? Because we've been sanctified. Do you know this building has been sanctified? Well, yes, maybe in 50 years uh, this thing would be sold and somebody else may come and buy it and uh, it may become a car lot. I don't know. I just made that up, obviously. Uh, But, you know, this could be some other purpose and something else could be going on in this building someday. You never know. But, But right now, tonight, this building is sanctified for the purpose of the preaching and the propagation of the gospel. This pulpit is sanctified to hold up the Word of God to, so that the preaching of the Word of God can go out. And this is the purpose of this pulpit. It, it, it's not intended for stand-up comedy. This wasn't designed to, for entertainment. This wasn't set up here so, so we could have something to, to, to hold up who knows what. I can't even think of anything good now. But you know what I mean, right? No, it's sanctified. It was for a purpose, just as Ezra's was. They built it for a purpose. And he's standing... You know why else he's, they, they built a, a pulpit of wood? He was elevated. Oh, here I am. If I was down here, the front row would see my, would see my eyeballs, and that's about it. You wouldn't see nothing back there. <laughs> if Nona would lay down, you might see me. But uh, I think Ezra was short. You know why he was elevated? He was elevated signifying the importance of what he was reading. No, this is an important thing here. We're talking about the Word of the Living God. The Word of God was elevated. And the Word of God was elevated, of course, to signify His importance. But Ezra was elevated to signify His importance as well. You say, oh, he, he was important? No, listen, what made Ezra important was what he was doing, not who he was. What he was doing. And, I, and I, you know what? I, I think it's good for preachers to remember this as well. You know what? God can take me out of the, out of the road anytime He wants. He can find somebody better than me, more accomplished than me, probably closer to Him. In many ways, of the better heart than I am. Listen, he, he doesn't need me. He doesn't need you either. What, what, listen, what makes the position of pastor an elevated position is, is, what is what is going on, what is being done, not who that person is. I am just a wretch like you are. 
And thankfully, God has changed us and He's changing us. And we're not what we used to be. But listen, we are still capable of anything under the sun. Don't ever put me on a pedestal. Don't put anybody else on a pedestal. It is the Lord Jesus Christ that we watch. Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. Remember that? Yeah. So Ezra was elevated. The Word of God was elevated. And I know churches are going to this, this fad of preachers sitting on a chair on a, on a tall bar stool and, and uh, they have no pulpits and, and they'll have their little laptop maybe to, to teach off of. And I'm telling you, this is another assault. It is another assault on the importance of the preacher and on the importance of the Word of God and on the Bible. It's an assault on it. Do you know God chose the foolishness of preaching to save? God chose that. And he chose a preacher to do it. How shall they hear without a preacher? That was God's or This is God's plan. And listen, you take the pulpit away and you put me in a chair so that I can't get excited. And all you're doing is stating that what is going on up here is not important. And the office of the one preaching is not that important also. Oh, you just, you're, you're just us. Yeah, I am just you. Except that God has given a position, an office called pastor. And I'm, t- I'm going to tell you something. Derek is not much help to you. The pastor is. Yeah. Absolutely. And the, listen, the world is having an... There is, a, there is an on, just an assault on the importance on, 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 on the importance of preaching and on the importance of the Word of God and how it is done. Here they assembled and here we see all of the activities that are taking place. Look at verse 5. Brother Jim, you reading this? Okay. <laughs> That's why I had to do it, brother. I knew this was coming. That boy. The people stood at the reading of the Word of God. We're talking about elevation. We're talking about honor. We're talking about the importance of what's going on. Yeah. You know, look at look. Uh, let me read this. And Ezra opened the book at the sight of all the people, for he is above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. All the people. You know, to, do you know to stand in someone's presence is to show respect. And there's some, you know, where we our church before here, there would be some. I, I don't know. It's just habit. Somebody would come up, and generally some older gentleman might come up and how how you doing, brother? Say, and I just habit. I just stand up. Oh, don't stand up. I'm like, I'm sorry. You know, it's just it's habit. No, it's respect, which is missing in society today. But he's an elder. I mean, if we're told not to rebuke an elder, do you, don't you think there ought to probably be some respect toward, towards our elders as well? I'd, I'd hope. Some of you should say, Amen. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it shows respect. You know, we stand in court when the judge comes in. You know, you know you're made to. All rise, the honorable so and so. Yeah, why? It's respect. It's not just necessarily respect for him as well, but it's respect for what is going on in that place, which is adjudication and judgment that's taking place. This is an important thing they're saying. And the one who has the power to wield a sentence has a very important role to play. And listen, we need to understand and acknowledge by standing, this is important what's going on here. Yeah. To stand for our national anthem shows respect for those who bled and died for our freedom. I don't want to push a button there, but it is. 
When you stand, you say you're more important than me. They may not be, but that is an, it could be it is a, an avenue of respect. Yeah. Let me ask you something. Is there really anything more important than the Word of God? Is there anything really more important than what is going on here tonight? No, I, you know what I am convinced of? I am utterly, completely convinced that in, in the Lord's churches, in those churches that are, that are God's churches, there is nothing more important in the universe that could happen than what is happening in God's churches. They're the most important thing going on on the planet on Sundays, Wednesdays, some Thursday nights, some Tuesday nights. Meeting together for, for, for uh, soul winning and, uh, and, and going out with the gospel. Nothing more important than those. And what we are saying when we stand for the Word of God is we are revealing the importance that we place on the Word of God. Hey, listen, saints, it saved you. Pretty important. It sealed your eternal destiny with your God. It's a pretty important thing. Yeah. So we can see by the activities of this assembly what their view of the Word of God was. See that? Now notice thirdly, their activities, but notice thirdly, their actions. Look at verse 6. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen. Amen with lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads, and they worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Our culture has become so self-centered that it is easy now to believe that everything is for our enjoyment and for our benefit. That if it doesn't benefit me, eh, I'm not it. I'll do something else. It's no good for me. You know what we call this? There's a, there's a big term for this called humanism. And, and I'll define humanism for you. Humanism is simply this. The end of all being is the happiness of man. The reason I exist, the end of my, the end of my purpose on life, my entire purpose is my happiness. That's what humanism says. Have you not seen it in these last few generations? Some call them millennials. <laughs> And even back beyond that, we've always had the problem of humanism. We've had this forever. But my goodness, is it not manifest today in a greater way than it ever has been. We see it in the so-called preaching of today. Humanism. There's a group that, that you know them, they're called a word of faith. They believe, they believe because they, are, they have the Spirit of God and they believe that whatever they say has power. There's people like Kenneth Copeland that, that taught that teach, and he's a demon, and, and, he, and I'll say it, and it's recorded, but he, he says that God created the, the animals, and all the animals were just carcasses laying there without life until Adam named them. When God says he said Adam named all the animals, that Adam actually spoke life into those animals, and they're just laying there until Adam spoke life into them, that he had that power within him to, to speak life. That's blasphemy. <laughs> the world was fr- is framed by the Word of God. It is held together by the Word of God. And we, within His creation, have the ability to have that much power in our words? Absolutely not. These are the, what, what, the, what we call the Word of Faith. They, they are call themselves Word of Faith. Some call them prosperity gospel preachers. 
I like the term blab it and grab it. Yeah. Name it and claim it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I worked with a guy. I like him. He's a good guy. And uh, he, he is of that persuasion. He used to not be. He, he's gone all over the place. And we were talking about that one time. And he said, I went to the doctor. And my doctor told me I had cancer. And he said, I said, nope, I'm not even talking about it. No, I don't. And he says, I haven't had it since. This has been 30 years ago. He goes, because I, I, I determined I have the authority. But in Jesus Christ, I determined that I didn't have cancer. I said, wow, you're God now. I was like, that's, that's really blasphemous. <laughs> Think about it, you know. You have creative power in your, vo- in your words? Oh, boy. This is humanism. This is the, the humanistic type of preaching. They have the Rolls Royce. They have the big cars. They got the jets all over the place. The Joel Osteens of the world. The Kenneth Copelands. The Hagans. The, the Joyce Myers. All, they are multi, multi, multi millionaires. They're filthy rich. Yeah, humanism. It's all about me. God wants you prosperous. I, I, I'm sure He does. I'm fine with people doing well. Absolutely, I'm fine with people doing well. If they're, if, if they're obedient to God and where God wants them to be. Yeah. There's some very wealthy people that I've met that, uh, that have an incredible heart for God. I remember Brother uh, Keller. Heard him at a men's prayer breakfast out in Oklahoma. <clears throat> and he owns. He was an architect. Owned three different architectural firms across two in the United States, I believe, one in France or somewhere in Europe. And a humble, humble man. And he he owns a camp. I don't know if anybody knows this camp. This kids camp called Indian Creek up in the very south tip of Indiana, almost into Kentucky. And it was in his heart the, to the church he went to there in uh, in um, what's that? What's that city way up north in Kentucky? I say that to my son-in-law. He says he's from the south. Louisville, yeah, there we go, yeah. <laughs> way up there, way up there, Louisville. And uh, there's a church there, a Shawnee Baptist church or something like that, and they have this camp. And, and, and his, his Brother Keller goes to this church, and he said, God put it on my heart. And he said, I bought the camp, I bought the grounds. He goes, I don't know how to run it. Church gets to run it, I bought it. He said, he spent $3 million of his own money. And he, he bought the property, he furnished the, pro- the, the buildings, they built everything, designed. They, he did everything that, I mean, the guy was a wealthy man. He said, God never called me to preach. I, I surrendered to it, and he said, never, never told me to. And he was a very wealthy man. And he, and he pulled out a letter, and he began to read a letter of a, from a mother that a mother sent him of her daughter that went to this camp and got right with God and came back from this camp in a great way. And he read this letter, and, and, and he just says, you know, of all the investments I have, and I have a lot of investments, this camp is the only investment that makes me cry. I love these letters. <laughs> oh, no, God uses people with money. If it's for the right reason. That wasn't, that's not humanism. The guy has spent and spent and spent. And God just kept giving. And that's fine. Nothing wrong with that. We're not all called to that, obviously. <laughs> humanism. We see it in our preaching. We see it in our Christian songs. It's all about me. It's all about what I get. Listen to this one. At a roommate in college, he, oh, I couldn't stand this thing he'd play. And this is from a, a group called Audio Adrenaline. Sounds very Christian, doesn't it? Yeah, I like that. It's a blessing. This is what the, listen to these words. And he played it all the time. It's still in my head. 25 years later, it's in my head. I don't know where you lay your head or where you call your home. 
I don't know where you eat your meals or where you talk on the phone. I don't know if you got a cook, a butler, or a maid. I don't know if you got a yard with a hammock in the shade. I don't know if you got some shelter, say a place to hide. I don't know if you live with friends in whom you can confide. I don't know if you got a family, say a mom or dad. I don't know if you feel love at all, but I bet you wish you had. Come and go with me to my father's house. Come go with me to my father's house. And here's the chorus. It's a big, big house with lots and lots of room. It's a big, big table with lots and lots of food. It's a big, big yard where we can play football and big, big house. It's my father's house. Ibby dibby dibby bop bop bow woo yeah. That's what it says. That's how it goes, okay? <laughs> and here's the all I know is a big old house with rooms for everyone. All I know is lots of land where we can play and run. All I know is uh, you need love and I got a family. All I know is you're alone, so why not come with me? Wow, that's deep. Nothing no nothing about the person who made it possible. Not mentioning the entire theology of this whole thing of his house is wrong anyway. No, 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 this humanism, it's in our music. It's in our preaching. It's all about what I can get out of, out of the deal. But listen, in God's economy, it's a complete opposite. In God's economy, the focus is upon what I can give. And in God's economy, getting, watch this, watch this, listen, getting is a byproduct of giving. Cast your bread upon the waters, and after many days it shall return unto thee. What? Give, and it shall be given unto you. Huh? Pressed down. Shaken together. Hey, yeah. No, in God's economy, it's the complete opposite of the world. We give, and by giving, the byproduct of us giving, of a life and a heart of a, a giving life, the byproduct of that giving life is, a, is getting our needs met. Remember Jesus said, give and it shall be given unto you. You know what? He didn't say what to give. He didn't even say money. Though that is included in giving. But it isn't all inclusive. No, it's a heart attitude of giving. Are you a giver or a taker? Are you a giver or a taker? Jesus said in Matthew 6.33, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things will be added unto you. What were all of the things He was talking about above there? Remember that? The food? Oh, you have little faith? The food? The raiment? He says, don't you know I feed the sparrows? Don't you know I know where the sparrows are? Don't you know? He said, the lilies of the field, they toil and they spin. Uh, spin not yet. Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed as one of these. Jesus says, I take care of the lilies of the field and, and I take care of the sparrows. Do you not think I'll take care of you? So you know what he says? Just seek the kingdom of God. Listen, if, you, if the goal of your life is to see the kingdom of God increased, Jesus says, I'll take care of your needs. Yeah. You know, it's not like that in churches today. Actually, it's the opposite. It's the opposite. It's, it's why they're dead. It's why they're lifeless. People come in through the doors, and you've heard them. Brother Curtis, you've dealt with these people. <clears throat> I think I just came up with this because I've heard it myself. I, I don't know if I've heard anybody say it to me yet. But they come through the doors, and the primary question is uh, not, uh, it's not this. It's not, hey, what Bible do you use? Not all the time. Sometimes the primary question isn't that. What, what kind of music do you sing? Uh, well, uh, when is your visitation outreach? I want to make sure I can be there for that. How many missionaries do you support? No. Too often, when they come into the doors, the first thing on their mind is, hey, what's in this for me? 
What can I get out of this? How are my, how are my needs going to be met here? How are you going to meet my needs? I don't know. Ask God. <laughs> what, how am I supposed to answer that? What do you have for my children? Uh, nothing. Preaching. <laughs> yeah. And, and let me tell you something. They understand. They understand more than you think they understand. Now, it might come out weird. Our daughter Kendra was what? She's about 10? Yeah, yeah. Doesn't the Bible say something like God works in creepy ways? It's like, uh, close. <laughs> God works in creepy ways. Very close. She was listening to something. You know, if you would tune in to God, if you would tune into God's economy and come with an attitude of giving instead of getting, you'd get all your needs met. Yeah, you would. And, and you know, and that attitude is revealed in the actions of church members. Now we're talking about actions. They assembled. We, we, we saw the, how they came together and assembled. We, we saw what was a part of this whole service. Now we're looking at the actions of the, of the, of the people. No, this is you. <laughs> this is me. This is our actions. Look at verses 5 and 6. Ezra opened the book on the side of all the people, for he's above all the people. I read this. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. There's an action. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, with the lifting up of their hands. And they bowed their heads, and they worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Do you notice this was a response to the reading of the Word of God? You ever done that, heard the, or just heard it read? And you're like, mm. Amen, that's good. <laughs> yeah. Bible says Ezra blessed the Lord. That word bless means to praise or to salute. You know, God was the audience of their worship. It wasn't about them. It was about God. Ezra was just reading the Word of God. And the people were responding. They were responding to the Word of God. The people, look what the Bible says, the people answered. They talked back. They answered, not talk back. Andrew, they weren't talking back like that. They were just answering. And they said, Amen. They lifted up holy hands, said, Amen. And then they bowed their head and they worshiped God. I've said this before, worship isn't this new stuff of looking up, that, that, that humanistic me stuff. Uh, no, when you come into the presence of a holy God, I don't think it's the looking up, I think it... It creates the looking down and awe. Yeah, absolutely. You know what they were doing? They were responding to truth. Truth has a response. <laughs> well, they were responding to truth. Ezra was reading the Word of God. And listen, when a church is God-centered and not self-centered, God's people respond to Him. Because they're there to worship Him. They're, they, are, they are there to hear what God has to say for their life. And I dare say, if they're there to hear what God has to say for their life, they're probably, hopefully, going to respond when God speaks. You know, amens aren't for me. They might help. <laughs> so I don't take so long, you know. No, the amens are for God. The amens are, the tr- are for truth. They are for the Word of God. What are you saying when you say amen to, to the Word of God, to the preaching of the Word of God? You're saying, so be it. 
You're saying, true. You're saying, no, I agree. Why is that so important? I don't, I mean, think about this. God recorded their responses. This is important. When a Christian doesn't respond to the word of God, it becomes hard to tell if truth is being received. And it becomes hard to tell if truth is being believed. But you know what? I think there's a bigger problem here. I think there's a lot larger problem. You know, when people come into our midst, into this church, and they are lost, and we had lost people here this morning, and when they come into our midst, and the response to the Word of God is not only is it an act of worship, but it's also another avenue of preaching the gospel. Think about that. When the Word of God is going out, and you're saying, Amen, what you are doing is reinforcing the gospel, you're preaching right along too. It's not, no, no, when a lost person comes in our service, listen, you, you had better believe that Satan is fighting them every step of the way. And he's fighting you as well. And he's fighting me. He, he fights truth constantly, no matter what it is. But I'm talking about a lost person, and Satan is fighting that, that individual with every lie that he can muster up. But when God's people are responding to the preaching, listen, you, don't, you just don't have the preacher battling the demons and, and, and all the doubts and the questions that Satan's bringing up, but you have all the members battling as well. Everybody's involved in this thing. And, and so responding to the preaching is another form of evangelism. You say, I'm not that really good at talking to people. Well, say amen, and maybe that'll help them out, right? Amen. Yeah. Listen, you can, a lost guy, can he can argue against one maniac preacher. That's fine. But it becomes harder to argue against 30 or 50 church members. Yeah. No, listen to me. Listen, listen, listen. The very purpose of preaching is to elicit a response. A response during it and a response after it. The assembly of the church. The church assembles. The activity of a church and the actions of a church. God recorded this. I've got a question for you and we'll finish up. Ooh. Don't look. <laughs> I'm just Why do you come to church? Uh, and honestly, I mean, not honestly, stop saying that. Seriously? <laughs> Maybe that's better. It's probably the wrong crowd to ask this question. But hey, I'm going to ask it anyway. Why do you come to church? How are you responding to the Word of God? We see the response before the before before they stood up. It says when the book was when the book of the law was open, which would have been not, okay, scrolls. Okay. When it was open, they stood up. During it, they said, Amen. And they lifted holy hands to God and said, Amen. And after it, they got on their faces and worshipped God. They were getting right with God. You know what they were doing at that water gate with the Word of God? Getting Babylon off of them. Getting Persia off of them. 
No, they'd been there laboring and working. And, and listen, in all this time that they were laboring and working with, with, with you know, Babylon and those people of the Persian Empire, the sand ballot, Tobiah, they're all there. Dirtying up their water. <laughs> no, they're, get, they're getting clean. You know what happened when they got clean? <laughs> they started to worship God. You know what happened? You, you ever just get, you, you ever just been dirty and get clean? And it's like, oh, this is wonderful. Thank you, Lord. You just start worshiping again. Yeah. How are you responding to the Word of God? Let me ask you this. Are, are your reasons for coming to church and the way you respond, are they helping or are they hindering? Are they helping or are they hindering? Father, I'm just constantly amazed at Your Word. I'm constantly amazed at how You speak to us. How clear it is. How simple. And how often I need to be reminded of what my own worship ought to look like. Not the way I need to construct it, but if things are right on the inside, what it's going to naturally look like. I thank You that You give us barometers in our life to show us where we're at. And Father, I just want to ask You to help us tonight. I, I'm quite convinced that Your people that are here tonight, uh, Father, would desire to make sure in their own life that the reasons that they are here and, they, and the ways that they are responding are exactly what You want. And Father, would you correct us where you need to? Would you encourage us where you need to? And uh, we just pray that everything at this place, in this church, in this city, right here, Lord, would be done just as you want it. That the people who come into our midst would know that, man, these people are different. My, these people, they have a different heart about them. They sing different. They worship different. They respond different. Well, that's what we want them to hear. And I pray that they can. God, would you help us in that? Would you do a work in our heart, please? In Jesus' name, thank you. Amen. Why don't you stand just for a moment? We don't have any music, but... uh...